Hey y'all, this is Amy. And this is Jessica. And we are 1096 Crime Chicks. What, what? And we're back. We are going to do part three of Joe Bryan, but first we had a little bit of news. Dun dun. <laughs> we wanted to say a huge thank you to Rich Marini from the San Antonio Express News. We tried really hard to get together and do a joint interview, but couldn't figure it out. No, so Scheduling just didn't work. Um, I did an interview with them. And he did an article, and it was all about women and how they are producing and listening to more true crime podcasts. It was really kind of fun, and we totally were, like, included in this amazing publication. Yes, talking about why more women do podcasts than men. Yes. And And so, if you haven't read it, definitely go check it out. We were included with some really amazing chicks. Yes, we were. I mean, they are all my favorites. Yes, we listened to them. They, they're they the ones that kind of inspired us to do what it is we're doing. Yeah, so it was really exciting. So y'all should check it out. Yeah, post it on our Facebook page. Yes. So, so, yeah. Go look at it. Go check it out. Part one, we talked about the murder of his wife, Mickey, and everything that kind of led up to their investigation and everything. Part two, we talked about the court case for Joe Bryan and how he was convicted twice for murdering his wife. So this time we're going to talk about some more stuff. Yes. Part three. Um, And some of it's going to be coming uh, from the point of view of Leon Smith. He's the editor-in-chief of the Clifton Record, which is the Clifton paper. Yep. And he actually went down and interviewed Joe Bryan himself. And so some of this is uh, what he heard and kind of how he felt about the investigation. And then we're going to get in a little further of uh, some other things I think we talked about. Yeah, the blood spatter expert classes. Yes. And the the lady that wrote the article that we have a lot of information from, mm-hmm. um, she's with the New York Times. Pamela Koloff, I think is maybe how you say it. But she took the blood spatter ex or blood spatter class that uh Robert Thorman mm-hmm. took and it's really eye opening. Yes. Yeah. So his his forty hour one week expert class, right? Yeah. Such an expert. Hey, she could be an expert now. This is true. I'll be sure to let local law enforcement know if they need an expert. We're just going to call the lady from the New York Times. Exactly. (laughs) So, all right. So, let's get started on part three of Joe D. Bryan. Leon Smith, the editor-in-chief of the Clifton Record, decided to drive to Huntsville to meet with Joe Bryan, where he was serving his prison time. Leon had overseen the paper's coverage of Joe's trial and subsequent retrial, But he had never stepped foot inside a prison, and as the Walls unit came into view, he felt both the excitement and apprehension. The maximum security penitentiary, named for the towering walls that form its perimeter, the maximum security penitentiary, named for the towering walls that form its perimeter, houses that was then and what remains the most active chamber death in the century. As Smith surveyed the large red brick building, he was awed by its magnitude. He could not help wondering how Joe who had no criminal record before he was charged with his wife's murder, had fared inside. What prompted his trip to Huntsville was a recent visit to the records office from a Clifton man named Don Whitley. The Whitley family was struck by tragedy six years earlier when Whitley's 17-year-old daughter, Judy, was murdered. Her nude body left in the cedar thicket on the western side of town. No one was ever apprehended, and the anniversary of Judy's death had just passed. Whitley had little faith that local law enforcement was still looking for her killer. 
He told Smith that the Clifton police had abandoned his family. They just walked away, he said, and asked Smith if he would be willing to write to Unsolved Mysteries in hope that the hit TV show might decide to dig into the case. That was one of my favorite shows. Oh my gosh, I loved it. I loved it, but it was deathly terrifying with that music. <laughs> and that guy's voice, like, at nighttime, it was terrifying. Yes. Was it, was it Robert Stack? Yes. Is that who it was? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, the most iconic voice. The show looked at both of the 1985 murders, Whitley said. His daughter was killed just four months before Mickey Bryan, and he wondered if the crimes were somehow linked. Exactly how, he wasn't sure, and he thought they should be investigated together. Before the killings, no one could readily remember the last homicide in Clifton. Moved by Whitley's appeal and intrigued by the idea of revisiting the two crimes, Smith agreed to help. Though he had initially been skeptical of the state's case against Joe, he was mindful that two juries had returned guilty verdicts. Smith's wife, Carol, however, knew Joe and never believed he was capable of hurting Mickey. Smith contacted Unsolved Mysteries, and after a producer expressed interest in learning more, he settled on an ambitious plan. He would re-examine the evidence in the Brian and Whitley cases, see if Joe would be willing to talk, and then publish an article that would hopefully secure the show's attention and jumpstart the Whitley investigation. He wrote to Joe, whom he knew through association while covering the school district. I have never had anything to hide and still don't, Joe wrote back eager to talk, though the appeal of his second conviction was still pending. If this could help the Whitley family and me, then surely God has answered some prayers, he added. I appreciate your efforts in this more than you can possibly understand. Smith informed Clifton's police chief, Jim Vanderhoof, of his coming interview, and the chief, who joined the force after the murders took place and shared a good working relationship with Smith, suggested that he come to the station to look through the evidence boxes. Oh, how cool is that? Right? I'm sure that doesn't happen anymore. No, no, there's too many. <laughs> no. Vanderhoof let Smith spend two days with the Bryan file. Sifting through the stacks of notes, reports, and crime scene photos, Smith was immediately struck by the number of leads that no one followed up on. Most conspicuous among them was a report about two men seen shortly after midnight at the local Ford dealership, which it still boggles me that Clifton, the size of it is, has a, a Ford, Ford dealership. dealership. Yes. They were seen shortly after midnight at the local Ford dealership on October 16, 1985, roughly 16 hours after Mickey's body was found. Each had a lengthy rap sheet that included weapons, offenses. One also had been charged with theft and invasion of privacy. The reporting officer noted that one of the men was standing beside a van, quote, that had just been spray-painted green from the color white. The man claimed that he was getting the van, which had no license plates, ready for a hunting trip. Smith was a naturally inquisitive reporter, and as he read more of the case file, his mind began to race with questions. I don't care how inquisitive you are. <laughs> There's someone <laughs> spray-painting a van with no license plates on it. Right. Says they're going hunting. That's suspicious. Right, yeah. Although that is a good area to hunt. It is. But. But. Yeah. By the time he arrived at the walls and was escorted past several heavy mechanical gates that snapped close behind him, he was consumed by a need to understand what happened to Mickey Bryan. As he took a seat on one side of a glass partition, he was less startled by the sight of Joe in a white prison jumpsuit, slightly heavier than Smith remembered, but otherwise unchanged. Then he was focused on the long list of questions on his yellow legal pad. He began by asking Joe about his confinement, and despite their surroundings, they fell into an easy conversation and catching up on old news. Joe said that his cell, which he shared with another inmate, measured five feet by nine feet. Quote, you hardly have room to even move if both of you stand up at the same time, he said with a laugh. 
During the wide-ranging four-hour interview, which was later published in three installments, Smith pressed Joe about various aspects of the state's case. Of the flashlight speckled with blood that Mickey's brother, Charlie Blue, claimed to have found in the trunk of Joe's Mercury, he said, quote, I did not put that flashlight in the car. When Smith asked about the prominent role that Joe's brother-in-law played of the prosecution, he professed more confusion than bitterness. Of Blue's decision to hire a private investigator without his knowledge, he wondered, quote, why not consult me and let me go in with him? Joe reserved his anger for law enforcement, whom he accused of ignoring clues, like the cigarette butt found on his kitchen floor, and unidentified fingerprints, which he believed pointed to his wife's killer. Quote, they had to convict somebody, anybody, so they went after me. As Smith listened to Joe, he began to consider whether a great miscarriage of justice had occurred. Joe sketched out the details of his existence within the prison walls. He explained that he held a clerical job that began each day at 4 a.m. and that informally, on his own time, he tutored inmates who were studying for the GED exam. The teacher's still in me, he said. It just thrills me when they come and ask me to help. He told Smith that he was allowed a five-minute phone call to a family member every 90 days, TV, radio, and his subscription to the record kept him tethered to the outside world, but he said he longed for everyday acts of kindness he once took for granted. I miss encouragement, a compliment of a job well done, the touch of another human being, he said. You have no idea the loneliness that a person can feel in here. His voice welled with emotion when he spoke of Mickey. She was my life, he told Smith. And as the interview drew to a close, he broke down. I have wanted to die every day because of the hurt and humiliation, the embarrassment and the accusations that are false the injustice that has been done. During Smith's three-hour drive back to Clifton, he was flooded with thoughts. He kept thinking about a particular moment in his mind. It occurred after the interview was done. A guard followed him outside, all the way to his car, telling him as they walked that many of the guards believed that Joe was innocent. Leon Smith did not succeed in landing a commitment from Unsolved Mysteries, but he was unable to turn away from the Whitley and Bryan murders. The case preoccupied him, demanding his attention, and he decided to undertake his own investigation. As he tried to find the best investigation avenue to follow, he focused on what law enforcement had not. He learned everything about the two men who were seen with the freshly painted van at the Ford dealership, discovering that the son of one of them had been a fourth-grade student of Mickey's in the fall of 1985. He made timelines, poured over public records, and once went through a man's trash. He decided to recreate a scenario that Joe Wiley, the Texas Ranger that led the investigation into Mickey's murder, described both trials. Neither of the Bryans smoked, and the cigarette butt, which was found on the kitchen floor, seemed like powerful evidence that an intruder had been in the home, until Wiley testified that he had accidentally tracked it in from outside on the bottom of his boot. Smith waited to conduct his experiment until the weather was damp from a recent storm, just as it had the morning Mickey's body was found. I stepped on cigarette butts in my boots for whole hours, Smith said, and I couldn't get one to stick to my heel for more than a step or two. Interesting. He's a better investigator than the police were. Right? Smith periodically shared his findings with Jim Vanderhoof, and although the police chief agreed that Joe's case was worthy of further examination, he didn't pursue it. Vanderhoof focused instead on the Whitley case, sharing details with Smith that reporters are rarely privy to in an open investigation. It was during one such conversation that Vanderhoof disclosed an explosive piece of information. The primary suspect in the Whitley investigation had been a Clifton police officer named Dennis Dunlap, who abruptly resigned and left town a month after the teenager's murder. Imagine that. Dunlap was familiar with intimate details of the crime that were known only to investigators, Vanderhoof told Smith. Physical evidence in the case, which the chief did not describe, subsequently disappeared from the police evidence locker. 
Vanderhoof added that Dunlap also had a history of harassing and intimidating women when he was on patrol. Smith had become increasingly skeptical about local law enforcement the more he learned about the two cases, and this new information only confirmed his skepticism. I had questioned the integrity of the police department enough by that point that I was not entirely surprised, Smith said. Vanderhoof told him that Dunlap had led a nomadic life, skipping from one small-town law enforcement agency to the next. The chief had managed to track him down to the town of Needville, southwest of Houston. Vanderhoof wanted to question Dunlap, but told Smith he did not think he had sufficient grounds to do so, because no new information about his possible involvement had come to light. Smith offered to help, and with the chief's approval and guidance, he wrote to Dunlap in the fall of 1991, explaining that for a story he was writing, he was reaching out to everyone who served on the force at the time of the Whitley murder. Dunlap's handwritten answers to the broad questions Smith posed were short and to the point. Smith pressed Dunlap to explain the erratic behavior that brought him under suspicion in 1985. Quote, Chief Brennan told me that I was not a suspect, Dunlap eventually wrote back. For six years, you are the only one who has contacted me in regard to the Whitley case. Then he went silent, never responding to Smith again. Dunlap's stonewalling signified a dead end in the investigation that would turn up many provocative connections. Dunlap, Smith learned, was friendly with the two men at the car dealership, but no hard proof on who killed Judy Whitley or who was present in the Bryan home on the night of the murder. Dunlap's stonewalling signified a dead end in an investigation that would turn up many provocative connections. Dunlap, Smith learned, was friendly with the two men at the car dealership, but no hard proof on who killed Judy Whitley or who was present in the Bryan home on the night of the murder. I don't know if anything will ever come of the time we spent chasing rabbit trails in cold leads, Smith said in a 1995 record column about his continuing re-examination of the decade-old murders. Yet it was Smith's letter to Dunlap that would finally break open the Whitley case the following spring. On April 12, 1996, the police in Rosenberg, Texas, where Dunlap had moved and taken a job as a maintenance man, responded to a 911 call placed by his girlfriend. When they arrived at his house, they found that Dunlap, who was 49, had hanged himself in the garage. During the search of the house after this, the officers found letters that Smith wrote tucked away in a dresser drawer in Dunlap's bedroom. The letters alerted them to the fact that Dunlap had once been a suspect in a Clifton murder investigation and they contacted the Clifton police. It was only with Dunlap dead that local law enforcement would finally explore whether Whitley was killed by one of their own. Smith would later learn that at least one officer who served on the police force at the time of the killing had strongly suspected that Dunlap was involved. The revived police investigation stretched into June 1999 when Rex Childress, the police chief at the time, because Vanderhoof passed away in 1997, declared the case solved based on information gleaned from interviews with undisclosed associates of Dunlap's to whom Dunlap had confided the grotesque and intricate details of Judy Whitley's murder. Smith wrote a front page article under the headline, Dunlap officially named murderer of Whitley teen. Smith included some of the horrific details of how Dunlap handcuffed Judy before leading her into the woods and listened in her final moments as she struggled to breathe. The probe revealed that the case's original investigators missed critical clues in 1985. Someone close to Dunlap told law enforcement that Dunlap had spoken of his relief that police did not discover the gray duct tape in the trunk of his car, a reference to the duct tape that covered Whitley's mouth. Also brought to light was his long history of violence against women, one victim said Dunlap choked her after she refused to have sex. I would kill you and no one would know it. Smith wondered how, if at all, this new information related to Mickey Bryan's murder. Before Vanderhoof died, while the investigation was still underway, Smith said that the chief told him that someone who was questioned, he would not say who, 
claimed that Dunlap once bragged that he and, quote, the school teacher had been together the night she was killed. Smith did not know if there was any truth to the statement, but he wanted to delve deeper. He was acutely aware that if he didn't, no one would. As far as anyone else at the police department was concerned, the Bryan case was closed, Smith said. People openly laughed at my idiocy for pursuing it. In the years that followed, as Smith became consumed with new obligations, he was forced to scale back his investigation. In 2000, he started a newspaper called the Lone Star Iconoclast in Crawford, 20 miles away, shortly before its prominent resident, George W. Bush, was inaugurated as president. The following year, in a fit of civic-mindedness, he ran for mayor of Clifton and won. Though he was busier than ever, he wrote to Joe when he could. When Joe wrote back, he did not dwell on the indignities of prison or mention his private turmoil, like his anguish over not being able to attend his mother's funeral in 2002. Mm -hmm. So sad. That breaks my heart. He talked about his hope that he would one day be given the chance to live in Houston with his older brother, James, who had pledged to take him in if he were ever paroled. Okay, now, is this his twin brother that had written him off? No. Okay. He had a twin brother and an older brother. This is his older brother. Right. Okay. Quote, I am fortunate to have a place to go to, he noted, explaining that he had exhausted all of his savings on lawyers for his trials and subsequent appeals. As Smith went about his work, Joe's case was never far from his mind, but after conducting scores of interviews, accruing reams of documents, and spending untold hours puzzling over the murder, he remained stymied. I couldn't fit all the pieces together, Smith said. I don't think Joe did it, but that wasn't enough. He had taken every detour, at one point even staking out the post office, after he began receiving bizarre anonymous letters Hearing Clifton postmarks that claimed Mickey was killed because she knew too much about local drug activity, but he never succeeded in identifying their author. In the years since Smith first visited the walls, Joe had lost all his appeals, and Smith came to feel a personal stake in the outcome of his case. I thought I should be able to figure it out, he said, and I apologized to him many times that I couldn't. In the fall of 2000, as Smith was contemplating running for mayor, this TV series, CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, premiered on CBS. The police procedural, which presented a world in which complex crimes would be cracked by the sheer force of forensic scrutiny, would go on to become the most-watched TV show in the world. While its characters were unpredictable, the science they practiced was not, as they analyzed blood spatter, lifted latent prints, and examined other physical and biological evidence left behind the crime scenes. Their conclusions carried the aurora of dependability. People lie, the show's hard-boiled investigator, Gil Grisham, once declared. The only thing we can count on is the evidence. But as CSI stood atop the Nielsen's ratings throughout the 2000s sprawling, a new genre that included Showtime's Dexter, about a bloodstained pattern analysis who spent his off hours avenging the deaths of crime victims, forensic science was facing a sudden reckoning. The advent of DNA analysis in the late 1980s had not only transformed the future of criminal investigations, it also illuminated the past, holding old convictions and the forensic work that helped win them up to scrutiny. Rather than affirming the soundness of forensic science, DNA testing exposed its weaknesses. The 250 DNA exonerations that occurred by 2010 throughout the United States, shoddy forensic work which ranged from making basic lab errors to advanced claims unsupported by science had contributed to half of them, according to a review by the Innocence Project. The sheer number of people who were imprisoned using faulty science called into question the premise of forensics itself. Just how reputable were these methods, and what exactly were expert witnesses' opinions based on? Hmm. Expert witnesses. Yes. Is that word again? Last fall, more than three decades after Joe's conviction, 
The author of Blood Will Tell, the article about Jody Bryan, Pamela Koloff found herself surrounded by human blood. She had signed up for a class on a bloodstain pattern analysis in the hopes of gaining a better grasp a better grasp of both bloodstain interpretation and the training police officers receive in the discipline. At each of Joe's trials, prosecutors used the testimony of Robert Thorman, a bloodstain pattern analysis, to lend scientific authority to an ambiguous case, and she wanted to more fully understand the basis of his expertise. Thorman's testimony had been critical because the state's case pointed an extraordinary sequence of events. Prosecutors asked the jury to believe that between 9.15 p.m. on October 14, 1985, when the Bryans spoke by phone, and the following morning when Mickey was found shot to death, Joe slipped out of his hotel in Austin, drove 120 miles to Clifton at night through heavy rain, even though he had an eye condition that made night driving difficult, shot his wife, with whom he had no history of conflict, drove 120 miles back to Austin, re-entered the hotel, and went upstairs to his room, all in time to clean up and attend the conference morning session, and all without leaving behind a single eyewitness. I just don't think it's possible. I don't either. The main piece of evidence they had was the blood-speckled flashlight that Charlie Blue found four days after the murder in the trunk of Joe's car. What connection it had to the crime, if any, was unclear. The blood on it was type O, which corresponded not only with Mickey, but also to nearly half the population. To secure a guilty verdict, the prosecution needed to tie the flashlight to the crime scene. With the unassailable certainty of an expert, Thorman testified that the flecks of blood on the flashlight lens were, quote, backspatter, a pattern that indicated a close-range shooting. He wove a narrative that placed the flashlight in the killer's hand. He also allowed the prosecution to explain away the lack of blood in the interior of Joe's car when he asserted that the killer had changed his clothes and shoes before fleeing the house. Thorman's testimony was influential, making the state's tenuous theory seem plausible. But jurors at the first trial did not know that, at the time, the only formal training Thorman had in the forensic discipline was a week-long class. He took it four months before Mickey's murder. Do you have some strong feelings about that? I sure do. <laughs> Thorman took his class in Beaumont, Texas in 1985. What? What? Beaumont? <laughs> <laughs> but such classes are still offered at police departments across the country, including Yukon, Oklahoma, where Koloff took her bloodstained course. The course, which cost $655, was offered by Bevel Gardner & Associates, the consulting firm of Tom Bevel, one of the discipline's most sought-after expert witnesses and a co-author of its principal textbook, Bloodstained Pattern Analysis with an Introduction to Crime Scene Reconstruction. That's a mouthful. mouthful. <laughs> yes. Bevel served as Thorman's instructor back in 1985, and it was from Bevel that Thorman acquired his understanding of the discipline. Though Bevel no longer teaches, his reputation's reach was reflected in the makeup of Koloff's class. There were Oklahoma police officers, Oregon forensic scientists, and two law enforcement agents from Taiwan. Their instructor was Tom Griffin, a partner of Bevel's who spent 27 years with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. As the week progressed, they were instructed to do increasingly complex work with little understanding of the trigonometry and fluid dynamics involved. They were taught how to calculate the area of origin, the place at a crime scene where the bloodletting originated. In a shooting, this would be the three-dimensional area in space where the bullet pierced the victim's body. Armed with calipers, scientific calculators, and string, they measured blood stains, plugged their data into equations, and tried to trace trajectories of individual droplets back toward their source. As was true with pattern classification, there were many ways to get this wrong. 
Small deviations with the calipers resulted in markedly different results. Quote, we're not really going to focus on the math and physics. It just kind of bogs things down, Griffin told them at the outset. I'll teach you which keys on your calculator to press. I wonder if that's what Thorman did. Well, that's the only kind of class I could take in mathematics. They tell me what <laughs> buttons to push. I don't do math. And you wouldn't think that with something like this pattern analysis that you would need math. Yeah. You know, I mean, you think to, it's just trajectory and, you know, the pounds and the pressure and the angles. and But yeah. really, you, you need that math, uh-huh. which is why I'm not a blood spatter analysis. I don't do math. Word. I'll add up your court funds. That's it. <laughs> it was upon this shaky foundation that Thorman had tried to reverse engineer the shooting at the Bryan home. Looking over his report one night back at her hotel, Koloff could see where his analysis went away. According to his report, he believed he was determining the alleged height from which the shots were fired, a conclusion on his data that could not yield. She began to wonder if his assessment of the flashlight, too, was faulty when he asserted that the blood on the lens was backspatter from a close-range shooting. On the last days of class, she was given her certificate of training after receiving a 97 on her final exam. Everyone in class passed. Griffin had told them that even if they had failed the final, they would still receive a t- certificate of completion, but rarely, he added, did anyone fail. So it's like he was just trying to make everybody pass. Yeah. It makes me wonder what Thorman's score was on his. Right. But, I mean, it, it didn't matter anyways. Everybody was going to get a certificate. Right. Their scores on the final exams were not recorded, he assured them, nor were the exams preserved. Don't worry that an attorney is going to come back and say, you missed question 14, he explained. That is just crazy to me. Yeah. From time to time that week, Griffin cautioned them, you won't be walking out of here an expert. You'll know just enough to be dangerous. Boy, you wasn't lying. Mm-hmm. It was a startling statement because judges across the nation have allowed police officers with no more training than they received the 40 hours to testify as experts. Griffin reminded them that their class was merely an introduction to the bloodstain pattern analysis and that they would need to complete an advanced class and a mentorship program before they would be proficient enough to call themselves experts. Yet he advised them on what to say if they were called to testify in court. On the stand, he suggested they should avoid saying what probably happened because that would give an attorney who cross-examined them an opening. You'll be asked questions by the attorney like, how probable? 85%, 75%, and it's less risky to say the best explanation. Alright, so that's where we're going to end the episode. Part 4 is next. Koloff will meet with two respected forensic scientists about bloodstain pattern analysis and what the National Academy of Science found in their report concerning bloodstain pattern cases. And Joe will get two new lawyers to help him. Sound good? Sounds great. And I want you guys to tell us what you think about Officer Dunlap. (laughs) Yeah. Because... I still feel like there's a connection, but I did catch something, and I'm sure they will too. He moved a month after Whitley was murdered. Mm-hmm. Mickey was murdered four months after Whitley was murdered. Mm-hmm. So is there any way he could have a connection? Do we know if he was down there visiting family? Do we know if he came back? I mean, it's very probable. Do we know if those two guys spray painting the van were friends of his, and they were out to, you know, let's throw Clifton PD for a loop and kill somebody else. Right. Like, who knows? Yeah. So many different what-ifs in this case. So. One thing I wanted to point out, 
1,604 downloads. Oh, on iTunes? No, on Podbean. Oh. We do not have any new reviews on iTunes. Oh, boo. Where are y'all? I know. Leave us some reviews on iTunes. We would love We like to reading those. I mean, y'all would get a shout out. Exactly. Who doesn't want a shout out? Yeah. What? What? So, all right, guys. So, we're going to try to be quicker with the next episode. It's been a busy last couple of weeks. <laughs> yes. And conflict schedules and... It took us longer to get out episode three than I think we intended, but it's here. And don't forget to stay tuned at the end of our episode to hear a promo from our friends at Murder City. Um, you'll get to hear their promo and stay tuned for our bloopers because we had a lot this episode. Yes. <laughs> and don't forget you can find us on Facebook, 10-96 Crime Chicks Podcast. Is that what it is, podcast? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is on yeah. Yeah, Facebook. Um, Twitter, 1096 Crime Chicks. The handle is at 96crime. Our Gmail is 1096crimechicks at gmail.com. And you can listen to us on iTunes, Podbean, Overcast. Oh, even on the um, iPhone podcast app. Oh. Yeah. Amy got a new phone, so she knows all these things now. It's a new work phone. What new work? Yeah, that's what I thought. We're not going to talk about that today. So, all right, guys. Well, thanks for tuning in. Let us know what you think. Let us know your theories. Uh, reach out to us on Facebook. Leave us some reviews. And Jody Bryant, episode four, will be here soon. Yes, and wait for it. There is some bombshell stuff coming up after episode four. Yes. So, new stuff. Absolutely. So, make sure you're listening to all the episodes of Jody Bryant because you don't want to miss out. Bye. Bye. I'm B. I'm Cece. And this is Murder City. True, True crime, crime of Houston, Houston, Texas. Slow down and take a trip through H-Town. Discover the dirtier side of the Bayou City as we discuss Houston's homicides and search for answers to unsolved murders and missing persons of our community. Lean back. And keep it trail. With Murder City. Find us at MurderCityPod.com. And on Twitter and Instagram at MurderCityPod. Houston is out. Houses that was then, and what remains, the most active death chamber in, in the century. Wait, no. <laughs> so I accidentally typed in as an I-N-N. <laughs> Seriously? I thought it, the chamber in, is that like the local hotel at the walls? <laughs> like, do they tell the people on death row, tonight you're going to be staying at the chamber in? What? <laughs> okay, let's back up. What prompted his trip to Huntsville was a recent visit to the records office from a Clifton man named John Whitley. Is that right? John. Shit, I was worried about the last name. But yeah, it was Whitley. Okay. Like Heath Whitley. Okay, got it. Murders took place. I'm sorry. Let me start over. <laughs> <laughs> TV, radio, and his subscription to the record kept him teethered by the out. Kept him teethered to the outside world. Is it teethered? Tethered. Damn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. TV, radio, and a subscription to the record kept him teethered. Tethered. 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 <laughs> okay. The cases preoccupied him, demanding his attention, and he decided to undertake his own investigation. Okay. Smith waited to conduct his experiment. Smith waited to conduct. Ugh. Vanderhoof added that Dunlap also had a history of harassing and intimidating women when he was on parole. I'm sorry. Yeah, he went on parole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
quote, Chef Brennan. Chef? <laughs> Who is Chef? My man. Okay. I just got an email from you that said Joe Bryan? No. I know not if, is it, I'm supposed to be, I know not of anything. I know not if anything. I know it's weird, but you know how. I know not if anything. I know, okay. It'd be the same thing as saying I don't know. Okay, we're just going to go with that. Okay. Whitley, who was present in the Bryan home on the night of the murder. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, why? Okay, can I start over? Dunlap Snow... Dunlap snowballing signified a dead end in an investigation that would turn up. What happened? Why are you laughing at me? Dunlap snowballing. <laughs> it's stonewalling. Okay. I'm going to get it. I don't know if anything will ever come of the time we spent chasing rabbit tails in Cold Smith Leeds. Rabbit trails. But, you know. I know not if anything will ever come of the time we spent chasing rabbit trails in Cold Smith Leeds. Smith said in 1995. Smith Leeds. I think maybe it's cold leads. Okay. Because I'm like, what are cold Smith leads? Damn it, you and your typos, Amy. Sorry. It's okay. The sheer number of people who were imprisoned using faulty science called into question the premise. 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 In the years that followed, I'm sorry, I have to say this. I was so glad that I said idiocy because I was worried that you were going to be like, what's this big word? <laughs> We're sorry if we're busting your eardrums, but oh. they are really loud. I'll make it quieter. Okay. A blood spain. Blood spain. Blood spain. Hey. And the Brian spoke by home. Spoke by home. <laughs> E.T. Go <laughs> home. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me try that again. My bad. Where are we at? Um... The devil no longer teaches his reputation's reach was reflected in the makeup of Koloff's case. Class. Started oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Try again! Alright. The shooting, this will be the three dimensional area in space. I messed that up. Armed with calipers, scientific cal. You're totally distracting me, by you the way. You got the big like words! Because I'm seeing it in my head. <laughs> Okay. Yet he advised them that you're almost done. I know. Okay. Trajectory. 